Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I'm talking with Dr. Aris Golden. Dr. Golden is the Assistant Director of Bands and Associate Director of the Spartan Marching Band at Michigan State University. Uh, she also teaches courses in conducting marching band techniques, the Spartan Brass, and conducts the Spartan Youth Wind Symphony. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. In this episode, Dr. Golden and I discuss her life and career. We talk about a little bit about gender equity and racial equity and the current state of music and music education. She also has some awesome advice for some new teachers that are just starting out. So I'm really looking forward to you listening to this interview. It was really fun to record with her, and I am so excited for you to get a chance to listen. So let us know what you think, and please share this episode with your friends. Thanks a bunch. Dr. Aris Golden, and I am currently the Assistant Director of Bands and the Associate Director of Marching Band, or Spartan Marching Band, here at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, which means that I, as we already talked about it, I'm directly involved with the Spartan Marching Band and all of its activities. It also means that I teach the third music major ensemble, concert ensemble, concert band, I teach beginning level conducting in the fall, and I teach marching band methods in the spring, and then both semesters I am the conductor of our youth wind ensemble, which is called the Spartan Youth Wind Symphony. So that that's where I am and what I'm doing and all that I do in kind of a nutshell. Awesome. All right, so we're going to start by talking a little bit about what got you started in music in the first place when you were a kid growing up. Ironically, neither one of my parents was a musician. They, they sang in the church choir and in our church services on Sundays, but other than that, they didn't really have any musical background at all. Um, but I do remember being interested in and being surrounded by music and listening to music when I was a kid. I was telling somebody the other day, it's my, I give credit for my ability to take drop the needle test through my entire music career and education in music because my dad owned all the volumes of Hooked on Classics when I was a kid. So if dad was in the office working on Hooked on, working on anything, you would hear anything ranging from those records with the disco backbeat to Mozart and Beethoven and Tchaikovsky to Tennessee Ernie Ford to Dionne Warwick to Burt Bacharach to Charlie Pride to just all of these different, to Mahalia Jackson, even all these different genres and different types of music that I really very early on in my life just was kind of bathed in all of that. And then once I got to elementary school, they decided it would be a good idea for me to take piano lessons. So I signed, they signed me up for piano lessons with an area teacher when I was in second grade, and I took piano lessons from second grade all the way through my senior year of high school, piano lesson per week, and did all those recitals and all those things. In the midst of all of that, when I was in sixth grade, I, you could, that's when you could sign up for band, which I think is still pretty traditional around this country. And I decided then that I would play saxophone. So I got my little alto saxophone, my Bundy two saxophone, and joined the band and was lucky to have the same band director for middle school and high school um, who did a really great job with all of us and then motivating all of us and then picking great repertoire for us to play and just making band a fun and engaging experience for so many of us, which is, you know, I credit that and my piano lessons really for getting me prepared to continue learning and be where I am today. If I, if I hadn't had that start and hadn't had my parents supporting me and all that, I, I would not have been as successful in doing all the things I've done, I don't think. Yeah, for sure. Did you feel like 
the ensembles that you were growing up in, you know, in middle school and high school and those sorts of things, did you feel like they were necessarily very diverse in your school district? Um, they were pretty stereotypical. As I, as I think back to my middle school band experience, especially because the way that our county were, was structured, there were two cities, one south, called Southport, one called Bolivia in that Bolivia area. So the kids from those two elementary school systems would gather into one middle school. And in all honesty, neither, I don't remember either elementary, like my elementary school especially being super diverse. I'm not saying it lacked diversity, but I just don't, especially in my classes, I don't recall there being a ton of other people that looked like me. And then when we gathered at that middle school, I think it was also pretty true. The population collectively, I think, was larger than it was in the two separate schools. But then within the band program, there were, I was trying to think by the time I got to high school, there were four I want to say African-American students, black students, and then there were one or two, like there's a student, I believe she was from the Philippines, and then a student who was from uh, another, I want to say portion of Southeast Asia, that area, and that that was it. But yeah, it wasn't, band wasn't the, the thing that you you did, per se, if you were a black student. And I don't, I don't have any thoughts as to what that might be or why that might have been, you know, whether it was the the school system structure or just the level of music that perhaps we were, we had accessible to us in our area at that time, because really you only had, you, you had church music, you had things like general music in the schools and choir in the schools as a part of that. But then, the, like, the closest ensemble activity you might be able to hear would be something in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was 30 to 45 minutes minimally from where we were all growing up. And I want to say back then, I'm not sure, but, like, the I think the Wilmington Symphony Orchestra was in, in existence, but I don't know how long that had been around. And then I don't know the opposite direction towards South Carolina, which would have been another 30 or 45 minutes, what the, the musical opportunities would have been down there. I'm, I was not aware of those at that time, and I don't remember now because of that, if all of that makes sense. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any answers, and I've, I've thought about that as of late, to be honest with you. It's like, you know, really, in some ways, the maybe the the music class the band class was even a little bit reflective of like who was in that college preparatory track or the gifted track is what track is what they used to call it when i was a kid versus the kids who were in something like an occupational track or something like that because that's how it used to be divided back when i was a kid yeah and that's something that i often think about as well because i teach in a pretty diverse school district and it's a title one school district mm -hmm. a lot of our student population is pretty reflective of our u.s demographics uh, so we're sure. about 60 percent white and then so on and so forth um, it's very much reflective of the the u.s demographics in that uh our first faculty meeting we had in the year, they actually put two pie graphs next to each other and it was pretty much identical. And so for me being a white woman and being band director at both the middle school and high school level, I'm really trying to make my band program as inclusive as possible because the band program that I came from, students of color really didn't participate in instrumental ensembles. And I felt like it, it was just kind of like a thing that, you know, white kids did and nobody else even attempted to do. And so I'm trying to break down those barriers and those gates that have been created in instrumental music that haven't been super encouraging for students of color to participate in, even from the beginning level. So I guess my next okay. question for you is, how can we further support, if we are currently a teacher in a program, how can we support more diversity in our programs? Well, I think that's something, that's a question that is being asked at all levels currently. And I think the answer is that you have to literally start at the beginning. Yeah. You, have to, you have to be looking at the musical experiences that students have in the elementary schools with general music and offering them 
you know, insight into, well, this is what a choral experience looks like. This is what an orchestral experience looks like. This is what a band experience looks like. So that they have in their minds, it's like, okay, so these things, these things look like something that I would be interested in and look like something that I could do. And then I think when it comes to, you know, choral music, I don't want to say it's easier, but I'll use the term that's more accessible because it doesn't come with a piece of equipment that costs you money. Yeah. While there may be some sort of entrance fee or fee that you pay for something like a t-shirt or maybe to help purchase the sheet music for the class, which is cheaper than orchestral and band music, you know, choral music is, is more, it seems to people to just be more accessible because it doesn't, for some people in some places, like at my, my last middle school where I taught band, the, the, the literal cost of the instrument was a barrier. So I think at that point, you know, for me as the um, as a director, I started having conversations and was very fortunate that I had a principal who was listening. It's like, okay, we have X number of children that are interested in this class, but we know full well based on what their parents have told us and some other school demographics about them that they cannot afford the instrument. So yeah. what can we do to ensure that these students can be a part of things? So two things happened in our county, both of which I think helped all of us, is first of all, what is it called? It's National Pond developed a system right as, right as I got into this county where they were going around counties in North Carolina and donating instruments that came into their pond shops. So they would donate them, we would have to have small repairs done on them, but that became a, a, like a, a system of instruments that we could draw upon to help students who couldn't afford one. And then my particular principal said, okay, so if this is happening, how many students do we have this year that are in this position? And, you know, came up with a number, what are they interested in playing, told him the number, and then he used school funds to buy instruments instructional, as instructional supplies for those kids. And they were able to use the instrument the entire time they were at our school. And then, just remarkably enough, I was there with that principal for three years, which was really kind of perfect timing. For each of the years that we worked together, he purchased a set of instruments in the same way. So by the time he actually left to go to his next position within the county, we had a, we had a system built up so that we had a grouping of instruments. One group of kids would go to the high school and a new group would come in and that set of instruments would be available to them. Um, but it's things like that. I mean, you have to, it's breaking down that barrier of cost of renting an instrument or purchasing an instrument and the cost of buying the band book and the cost of the reeds and the co cost of all the supplies or the cost of the rosin or the violin or, or whatever that creates the barrier that, you know, kids are, a lot of kids will look at the situation and see that, that, that that they would have to purchase something to be in the class and they won't even mention it to their parents. Mm -hmm. They won't even have the conversation with them. They will just like, yep, not for me. I'm going to do art or, or chorus or something that doesn't require my family to have to take on the debt of this because I know we can't afford it. And kids know. So, you know, it, it, it really, really the onus is on us as teachers to try to, to help mediate that. You know, yeah, and then, that was that was a good point that you mentioned about making the instrument rental fee at least something smaller, if not free, because a lot of school districts, at least the one that I grew up in, it was a few hundred dollars to rent an instrument for a year, and that's a lot for some families. Um, my mm -hmm. school district this year started at the beginning of the year charging them fifty, and I was able to weasel it down to nothing because we found out that the fee that kids are being charged was just going into the general pool for the school. It wasn't even coming back to the music program. It wasn't like coming back to help repair instruments or something like that. There was no justification for the cost. So now they're not like the best instruments in the world because there are right. some instruments, but it's something, right? Like it's keeping those kids that may be financially unable to afford something like that on top of everything else that they have to pay for to be able to still participate. Right. I mean, it's, and you, you can't make assumptions about people in their situations. I don't think we need to go to that place, mm -hmm. but, you know, we have to figure out a way that 
people feel comfortable communicating with us as the teacher to go, my student's really interested in this, but here, here's the struggle for us, or here's the issue, whatever, whatever terminology that might be, because you know some of the some of the really solid kids that were part of our program, we would have never had them in the program if we hadn't had those instruments available. Exactly. You know, and it's it's difficult because you're not always gonna just walk into a situation where you find an administrator that that got it like the one I worked with at at that school got it. You know, I still don't know why he did, and I'm not going to ask questions because it worked out just fine. But we have to figure out a way to make that happen. And yeah. then, you know, the, those same kids were able to go on to the high school, and because of the instruments that, that were donated, were able to continue on. You know, so we were, in our county, we were pretty fortunate to be able to, to have a system that worked that well for students who needed some assistance. Yeah. And can you delve a little bit more in your teaching experiences? I know you taught for 18 years as a band director. So can you talk a little bit about some of the programs you worked with and that sort of thing? So I was a middle school band director for 18 years before I came to graduate school here at Michigan State. So I taught at, in the span of those 18 years, I taught at three different middle schools. I'm having to really think about this. It's pretty funny. It's like, this should not be this painful. But I taught and it was in the center of the state. So I taught for the first portion of my career in what is in North Carolina, the Triangle area, which is also where I did my undergraduate degree. And then I taught for the latter part of it at two schools that would be more considered toward the triad, which is like your Greensboro, High Point, Winston-Salem area. Really in some ways it was kind of between the two. But yeah, three different schools. One of them, the first job I had was in Cary, North Carolina at West Cary Middle School. And that was a school, Cary's pretty known, I think, for being a pretty affluent area. But that particular school, and this was far enough after, we have, would have a Wake County school system, which is the county that Raleigh sits in, Cary, and all those larger cities. And then there was a, a city school system for Raleigh. So those two merged. After that, you know, they worked through the things that all that brought. So making sure that there was balance in the schools and diversity was balanced and all those things. So that particular school uh, had their had neighborhood students, but there were also students that were busting from downtown Raleigh. So that was an interesting mix when that first happened and continued to be really while I taught there of those kids coming in from a different environment, a different different culture than the, the neighborhood kids, and then learning to work together and function together to be in the same student body. And then the set next school I went to, which was in Mebane, North Carolina, which is about half an hour from Greensboro, very rural at the time compared to what it is now. Now there's a a lot of hustle and bustle around it. They've put in an outlet center for Tanger right in that area. So it's it's grown a lot, but really a, a different kind of student and a different kind of um, interaction with them and their parents there because they were just, it was just, it was more like where I grew up because I grew up in a very rural area and people, I hate to use the word down to earth, but people just were a little bit more down to earth and a little bit more you know, of that I've grown up, you know, and the closest house to me is two miles away. It's like very different field than I have neighbors side by side with me in a housing development, which it's become a little bit of that there now. And then the final school, brand new school, still a pretty, what we would term in North Carolina, rural area, but still only about a half an hour from Chapel Hill. Really well supported school system because what we learned as teachers is a lot of the professors from the university lived out in the county school system. So very supportive, fairly fluent in many cases, but also you could find some pockets where people weren't as affluent. So that was an interesting juxtaposition in that setting. And just, you know, parents, again, really just interested in their students and interested in being involved in the school setting in most cases. But yeah, just it's just in that central portion of North Carolina. Once I, I got to school at the university, I never went back home to the beach. And I grew up in southeastern North Carolina towards South Carolina. 
Yeah, the reason why I ask that question is because oftentimes a lot of people say, oh, you know, I, I was a middle school band director or I teach high school band, and they don't realize how diverse, you know, different school districts can be in their programs and what the goals and the challenges are and those sorts of things, even if it's just in one state or one area that you may have moved around in. And so my next question for you is, what were some of your goals, or like your philosophy as a middle school band director in those areas? I don't know that my philosophy changed from place to place. Mm -hmm. I think my approach probably did. Yeah. But, you know, I just always have been a firm believer that students, especially middle school students, will live up to whatever expectation you set for them, literally. And sometimes try to go underneath it while you're not paying attention because they're just like, well, you're not watching. He's like, no, we're we're gonna do this this way. Here we go. It's just that age. They're gonna they're gonna test things out. They're gonna try things. They're gonna do things that make literally no sense sometimes. But it's part of being middle school. That's just how that that works. But again, I don't think the expectation changed. I think the approach did. Because, you know, you can go in some situations, like if you're in a, a less urban area, you will find that the warmer the weather gets and the more the planting happens on the farms, the less time kids have to pick up an instrument and practice it. Yeah. So you have to you have to figure out in your mind, it's like, okay, how can I approach this to help the kids still be successful and us still meet our expectations? But they also are, have this commitment that they have to do for their family. Or, you know, they have to babysit their younger brothers and sisters while mom and dad are out tending the farm or out at work or wherever they are. So it's just you have to, you have to stop and think what your community looks like and how the people in your community function as a community and just make sure that your approach allows the expectations to be met and allows success to be found but within what that community is able to to manage doing if that statement makes sense it yeah. just you know there's no need to it's like you know in an urban area you know, the, the reverse of that is well if kids live in the apartments they're not gonna really be able to practice that much at home so it's like how do you as the teacher help them manage that do you set it up so that you have morning hours they can come in and they practice before school well sure or do you do something in the afternoon if your school runs a late bus and set it up so the kids can get home on the bus if they stay after school to practice you just figure out what within your approach needs to morph be adjusted to meet the needs that the students have and no i would argue that no beginning teacher immediately figures that out (laughs) that's not how that works i was at west Cary for seven years and i think it took me about two and a half to three to completely figure that out and then we started to make adjustments but it's you just i again i think the expectation is there but you figure out how you can help your students with the support of their families meet those expectations it just can't be across the board the same approach for every single place you go it just because not every place is the same yeah i completely agree and you were talking about middle schoolers will meet the expectations that you lay out for them. And I completely agree with that philosophy. And what's pretty impressive is, you know, I was stalking you a little bit (laughs) before this interview. And I was looking at, so you were able to take your ensembles to not only state conference, but also the Midwest clinic. So what was that preparation like for you as a director and those sorts of things in preparing your ensembles for that? What was the focus? Well, this also changed over time because, and I still don't know why I even sent in like the materials, but you know, the very first, when Wes Carey played at our state convention in North Carolina, I'd been teaching for four years. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why I did that. And I actually have some thoughts on why I did that, but we'll just, you know, sometimes when you're young, your ego writes checks that it shouldn't write. And, you know, that just, that's how that worked out. And I would argue the students, I think some of them, some of them see me differently than I see myself back during that time period. I can tell you that. Yeah. Like I, I am still stunned. That I, and I tell them if I talk to them or when I talk to them, it's like, I'm surprised that you guys even still talk to me because I was not put together. And they're like, we thought you were great. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's like, it was not put together as like a beginning teacher. No one is. You get better yeah. as you go, thankfully. But I would hope 
or I would like to think that, you know, the goals of all, all of those experiences were for us to, to do as great a performance as we could do. I think as time progressed, tried to make it a point to make sure that the kids, while they prepared well, that I wasn't a tyrant about it. That comes with age because, you know, it's like as you, I feel like for me, I'll just speak to me, I feel like the older I've gotten and the more that I know how to do and how to, to, to teach them what they need to understand to perform well, I can do it in less time so I don't have to be, again, a tyrant about it. That I don't know that that was the case the first time that we tried something like that, but I, think I, I would like to think that I've gotten better at that. And then in terms of, of the kids being in those spaces, for example, the Chicago trip that we did, like that was a lot for a lot of those kids. It's the first time they'd ever left the state of North Carolina, period. Yeah. So, you know, we tried to figure out, so what are the things that are quintessential Chicago that these kids need to do? We actually were a part of a clinic presentation, so we didn't do a full concert at the Midwest. We just were a part of that presentation with a couple of other colleagues of, of ours. But we made sure to do do some Chicago things. Like we're gonna go to Sky Deck and they were gonna be able to see the Chicago skyline from that perspective. That was just gonna, that was like the first thing we did when we got there. We were gonna take them to Portillo's and they were gonna be able to have some Chicago style hot dogs and other food. We were gonna have them have Chicago style pizza at Giordano's. We we're gonna do those things that are just like quintessential Chicago things. And then we were very fortunate that the timing of the Midwest worked out with one of my other colleagues, Rachel Maxwell, who teaches at Trauber uh, Junior High School out in Oswego, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes out to the west near Naperville, Illinois. It, it was her concert week. So we were able to go out to her school and rehearse. We were able to do our presentation at the Midwest Clinic and then go back out there and do a concert with her and her kids. So it's a, I still have this video of that concert where her sixth graders played, her seventh graders played, we played a short concert, then her eighth graders played a short concert, and then the finale was all of us playing together. Yeah. Like, and we're talking, this is like, Rachel's program has like 300 plus kids in it. Mm-hmm. So this was like literally 400 plus students and we all kind of look like drum majors. I mean, we're all stationed with the band. <laughs> it's hilarious. And we're all watching Rachel to coordinate and conduct. But this version of, of Ode to Joy that had parts for sixth grade through eighth grade, just like different, differentiated parts. Because it's like, if we're going to go up here, we're going to do this performance as a part of this clinic. But if we're going to try to find a concert opportunity, it just worked out. And I mean, it just... That was one of those things that's like, we're going to do this this way. <laughs> it's like, we're gonna try to set up as many experiences as we can for the kids. You know, even playing at, at the North Carolina convention, just making sure it's like, okay, well, yes, we're gonna do a clinic presentation here. We'll do it right after the concert. Great, thanks for inviting us to do that. But we're gonna bring in like a Brian Belmages, and we're gonna have Brian conduct the band and also do another presentation. We're gonna bring in John Pasquale and we're gonna have him conduct the band and we're gonna do a presentation with him. So just having them have opportunity and have access to, and that's something we tried to do just in general. I was very fortunate with the boosters once we set that program up for the school to have parents who were just really invested in what experiences can we provide for these children so we were able to have brian balmages be there we were able to interact with stephen bryant we're able to interact with michael markowski we're able to interact with pierre laplante and just have all these different experiences so the kids could actually go oh so you wrote that piece well that's kind of cool you know i mean just so that it becomes a little bit more real for them you know, than just seeing like the name printed at the top of the page is like, oh no, wait, so that's your name. Oh. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it just, I feel like the more experienced I became as I went along, the more and more and more concerned that I got about the kids playing music, but also 
understanding music and being involved with people who cre created the music that they were playing, you know? And just offering opportunities whenever we could to have people other than me interacting with them from a, here, let me lead this ensemble perspective. You know, it's like, uh, as a band director, it's like, you hear me too much already. <laughs> So why don't we have, you know, we had everybody come through the room from my teacher and boss up here, Kevin Sedatal, to doing the breathing gym with Pat Sheridan a couple different times. You know, it just, it's, and I feel like it just offers them more opportunity and more perspective. And I just think that that's really important, especially for younger students, because they have no idea. <laughs> they just don't. They are just learning how broad the world is around them. Mm -hmm. So I think it helped them. Anything we can do to help them, like, get that more, I think is important. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would like to just circle back a little bit and talk a little bit about collegiate experiences. Sure. So talk a little bit about your life as a student and now your life as a professor at a collegiate institution. So what made you want to go to school for music and pursue the conducting band director route? And I will say this as a preface, typically speaking, People, musicians are inspired by other musicians. So that's about to come out as I, as I talk through this a little bit. So I have a full-on Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from UNC Chapel Hill. That was my first degree. My junior year of that degree, we got a new band director at UNC and a new music education professor at UNC both of whom literally inspired no less than seven of us, I do believe is the number, to change our majors and go back and get music ed degrees. That's so amazing, that's so cool. It, it, seems, it, it seemed like nothing at the time, and I look at it and I'm like, that was crazy. Like, I finished a four-year degree, took a year off, lived with my parents, and then went back and did another four-year degree, because that's how it had to work uh, within the, the UNC course structure at that time. And luckily, my parents continued to support me. They just kind of shook their heads at me, and they're like, yep, that's what you should have done in the first place. We told you. And I'm like, I know. I hear you. I know. Can I do this, please? Um, like, this will not be the last time you say, "I we told you so. I, I yeah, okay. So I was able to do that. Um, and again, no less than seven of us did that. So we're in, like, all sorts of different places and spaces now as music, musicians doing things in different ways. You know, I, it's, I still just, I'm shaking my head at all of us doing that because all of us were in other programs, totally not music, still participating in music at the university and switched. So then I did my four years of a music education degree. And, you know, I would, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing at this because I, I remember sitting in high school band and you know, asking the questions like, so how would I have done that differently? Like, because, and I should say, both my parents were teachers. So my mom was a an elementary middle school teacher, K through six. Dad was a history teacher, eighth grade and high school. So I inherit my, like, inquisitive behaviors about how would I have done that differently? I am certain from them. But I'm just like, so how would I do that differently? How would I have done that differently? What would I have tweaked about that? You know, sometimes I'd write those things down. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> those are just like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? So, so that I would argue, me deciding to go to law school and do a political science degree the first time is just avoidance mode for what I should have probably really been doing. And then I decided while I, I got done with that, I got my first job in 1996 at West Cary. And then when I changed jobs to the Mebane area, which is closer to Greensboro, I did my master of music ed at UNC Greensboro. And they offer this really cool program that it's it's summers based. Yeah. It used to be, I think it still is, where you can do a lot of your classes on campus during the summer. And then you may have to go up during the school year for one class a semester, maybe two, depending on what you can take. So that was a really great experience, and it and it worked really well for me to be able to keep my position, keep working, but get that master's degree. So I got that, and finished that in 2004. Now, I will say within all of this, I've always been interested in things about conducting or, or things related to conducting. 
and I, I did symposiums while I was teaching. So UNC Greensboro has one every year and they bring in a different guest, well, actually three different guest clinicians, two of whom rehearse honor ensembles and one runs the conductor's clinic. So, you know, throughout the years I've been, I got to see Jerry Junkin and H. Robert Reynolds and Michael Haithcock and Craig Kierkoff and just all these big name conducting teachers coming through. And then on top of that, I would sometimes go during the summers and, and do uh, workshops as well. Now, and I just I just wanted to be better at it. I just wanted to I wanted to make sure that what I was doing from the podium wasn't making the students worse. <laughs> That's how it all started. It's like. Yeah, it's like because I think I think sometimes I know I used to as public school teacher, I used to sorely underestimate my impact on what they were doing and on how they were responding. And, you know, once I decided it's like I really would like I really would like to do another degree. I would like to do a degree in this at some point if I have the opportunity. And started going to these symposiums, it's like, oh, that really was me. I should fix that. You know, and started to really work through moving and and really interpreting and trying to 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 elicit different sounds from the kids and i know that some people are like but they're middle schoolers it's like yeah that doesn't make any difference they're still musicians and they yeah. can still respond you know you just have to teach them that particular vocabulary i mean if you're going to teach them forte and piano and teach them staccato versus tenuto versus legato then you can pair the motions with those that terminology so that they understand what they're seeing as well it's it's i know i'm making it sound super simplistic but it's not they can respond i know that i know that many times people think that the students aren't watching but then the question becomes it's like did they choose to not watch or are we choosing not to give them something to watch yeah yeah. For me, it's like you're not you're not doing anything to compel them to like connect with you. So change that. So, you know, I would take the information that I got in the summers or from Greensboro to to really start to work with the kids and try to to get them to respond to things with me not always or without me having to always stop the band and say it, stop the band and say it, stop the band and say it, because there's a ton of things you can do to move your rehearsal forward without ever saying a word if you and the kids have had the conversations about this means this, this means this, whatever. Okay, great. So from there, and I'm working through these things and going to different symposiums, I ended up, it was 2011 that Dr. Sedatal did the 11-12 band in the state of North Carolina at the all-state level. And I've never seen him work, never seen him conduct. You know, I heard recordings of the ensembles he'd been with, but just had never seen him in person. And so a friend of mine about and I, um, we we're we're gonna go in to watch this rehearsal before we go to our committee meeting, right? And then we get in there and we're looking at each other like, now I don't want to go to the meeting. How can we get out of the meeting? Like we're trying to figure out how we can avoid this meeting because <laughs> we wanted to keep him keep watching him rehearse because he's just really compelling, incredibly musical. It's like how is how is he making this happen? And yeah, we ended up going to the meeting. We weren't happy about it, but we went back to the rehearsal later on after the meeting was over. And then luckily, Dr. Sedatal, along with uh, Dr. Travis Cross and Alfred Watkins, who used to be at Lasker High School in, in Cobb County, Georgia, uh, were doing a symposium together at Dr. Cross's school, Virginia Tech, when he was there. Uh, so it's like, I'm gonna go. So a friend of mine and I uh, went up to Blacksburg, Virginia and took that workshop. And it's one of the, if not the best conducting workshop I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. And it was a combination of full ensemble music and chamber music, which I had never done ever. So here I am trying to conduct the Gounod Petite Symphony, like I'm trying to conduct like Hindemith or something, like all these big gestures. It just was a little bit crazy. But I was able to um, connect with Dr. Sedatal at that point and have some conversations about what, what might be possible. Uh, and of course, fortunately, I was able to audition and get into the studio here at Michigan State. And then from 2014 to 2016, I was here in graduate school 
2016 to 2018, I was back in Chapel Hill on faculty as assistant director of university bands there. And then fortunate enough to, in 2018 to come back here to my current position. But, you know, again, people, as I said, the start that whole sermon, for lack of a better word, uh, like people influence musicians. So my undergraduate uh, band director, Jim Heil, and his wife, Nancy Whitaker, who were the pair that I mentioned that came my junior year, are the people that kind of redirected me on the route that got me to here. And of course, you know, Dr. Setatal, uh, as a teacher and, and as my really work colleague now, has really continued to, to be an inspiration to me and I know a lot of other people and what he does and how he does it. But yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of that tour. That's how I got from, you know, sixth grade beginning band with my alto saxophone, my little Bundy 2 saxophone to, <laughs> to where I am now. Yeah, the Bundy 2, it's, it's a workhorse, that saxophone. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's how that all went down. Yeah. No, it's great. And my question for you is, obviously, one of the biggest issues in not just music education, but bands specifically, is that our profession tends to be very white male dominated. And so my question for you is, if you were in college and you were in these collegiate programs and that sort of thing, were you an only? Were you, did you feel like you were like ostracized for how you identify yourself or any of sort of that thing? Were your experiences mainly negative, positive, kind of a grab bag, you know, being not only a music ed major, but pursuing conducting in that way as well? I never felt ostracized at all. I, I have really felt and overwhelmingly so that my presence has been appreciated and the talents that I brought or bring to the table are appreciated. I've, I've always felt really good about that. There are always, when, when you live with the double-edged sword of black and woman, there are always things. And there are always, like, you know, the, the idea of the, the microaggression. But, you know, if you're talking to someone who's, who's black and female, they have to decide, you know, it's like, so which one of these things triggered that? Is it because I'm black or is it because I'm female or is it because I'm both? And here's how I'm going to respond. Like those things happen to this day and they can sometimes be a part of like the work setting or just I mean you can be out just in the world and they happen. But I don't, I don't feel like I've, been hindered obviously from a work perspective or from a professional perspective mm-hmm. you know there's some things is you know because hopefully for all of us in america today this this whole time since march has brought on some sort of reflection of some sort yeah. on your know, like life in general you know there are things that i look back on and i just kind of go huh in passing like something will happen that will remind me of something that has happened and my brain looks at it in a little bit of a different way and it's like huh that's interesting and then i'll just kind of keep going along and back to whatever i was doing before and i think i can attribute this to my parents as well you know they they very early on trained me to you know do what you do and do it to the best of your ability and that is your goal and you, you do your work and you do your preparation and you do the things that you know you need to do to be successful and you'll be successful. And I, I think that that is, that has played out for me throughout life. So, I mean, it's, I it's, your, it's your life, it's your experiences. So whichever way you answer that question, you know, that's, that's, you know, you, right? So it's well, a- yeah, that's a very good point. You know, I feel like the one thing I think I said this early on when we we're chatting, it's like the one thing I've done is try to be prepared Yeah. and try to be in a position that if the opportunity that I want or I've been looking for becomes available, I can be in in those considered, in the midst of those considered, which sometimes is a lot of work. <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit of work. Sometimes it's just not allowing yourself to be distracted 
from the thing that you're you're aiming for but yeah yeah and i feel like one of the biggest things that a lot of people talk about when we we discuss these issues is the idea of representation and mentorship and that sort of thing so you now being a professional in the field and you can also reflect upon you know when you were younger and as a student how has representation benefited you and like made you feel more motivated and able to succeed in the field were there people that you looked up to growing up um, that were like you or now as that you're a professional how are you being a mentor to your students there's I know that's lot. like a super loaded question <laughs> so give yourself yeah, there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> so there, there's a lot going on in that question you know from from the perspective of being a woman and being in the field of music education generally speaking again that you know my college professor Dr. Dr. Whitaker was a big inspiration because she, <laughs> she is a no holds barred personality. She's going to do the thing that she believes in and she's going to do it to the best of her ability and she's going to ask the uncomfortable question and she's going to pose the uncomfortable answer and, and there you go. You know, because she just, her belief in that all people are capable of living up to their, their potential is that's it's pretty remarkable she has not changed to this day at all <laughs> it's like one of my favorite moments in time well actually there's two of them one of them was the first time that she met my parents in particular my mother because they immediately bonded and i'm just like oh god this, this, will, this is just not going to end well for me because you all are now going to plot against me. And they're just kind of like smiling at me like, we don't even have to say it out loud. That's good. Now you know. It's like, great. You know, that was a fun moment because, you know, they're not different personalities. I could say this pretty much the same words about my mom that I said about Dr. Whitaker, except mom was a little bit more subtle. You know, we're talking, when you're talking about my mom, this is a woman who, in the mid-50s, headed into the 60s, was finishing her master's degree and going out and working through the time when schools were integrating in the county office as a supervisor, in a supervisory role. So you can just just you don't even have to think very hard to, to think about what all that probably meant yeah you know, she, ne- she never really talked about it she never really shared any stories you know because i was a younger kid she was old i mean both of my parents were in their 40s when i was born so they were older mm-hmm. so by the time that i was getting to a point that they could have those conversations they you know they were ill and then you know they passed away and it's just like I almost wish that they were saved the pandemic still alive today so I could have some conversations with them about all, so many of the things that are going on in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, just kind of like, yeah, she was going to do the thing that she believed in. And, you know, I, I guess it comes from somewhere, right? You know, when you're dealing with me. But, you know, as for me being, as for me being a role model and a mentor, I try, I, I try not to overthink the role model thing because yeah. that can be a little bit paralyzing for <laughs> me, for my personality, because it's kind of like, as in you mean people are doing the things I do. Well, I wouldn't suggest doing all of them. Hold on. You know, it's like, stop right now. Think about what you're choosing. You know, it's like, I, I just try not to overthink that. And from a mentoring perspective, I just, I, you have to have, comp- with people that you see potential in, and people that you know can move forward and be successful and make a difference as time progresses, you have to have conversations with them and you have to be available for them to, to approach you and do that. I also am pretty willing that if I see someone sitting on the fence and heading the wrong way, perhaps off of it to the wrong side, I'm also willing to have that conversation with them, whether they really want to or not. It's like, so where are we heading with this? What's your plan? Yeah. Well, this or that's like, have you considered this rather than that? Oh, well, no. I'm like, well, think about it. If you need to come back, you know where my office is. 
or these days and times, just send me a Zoom link. I'll sign in. Yeah. You know, we, we can we can chat about it. You know, but it's I think it's really important that if you see if you see someone that you feel like could make a big difference in your chosen field, you have to help the you have to help guide them through it. You know, and I can be I know for a fact I can be very opinionated. And I'm working on not being too judgy <clears throat> about things. Well, you know, if you're too judgy, that causes problems when you're trying to help. Like if you're mentoring somebody, you can't just judge them all the time. That is like defeating and tiresome, you know, and I feel like it's like you're guilty. You need to calm down, Golden, Dr. Golden. You need to calm down and be more helpful. Um, so, but I think, I think those things are key. I mean, I, if... One of the one of the things that I, I wish every beginning music educator could get their head around is the idea that literally, I get it, you just did a four or five year degree where you got a whole bunch of answers and you learned a whole bunch of things, but I'm here to tell you, you don't know anything yet. Like, you yeah. know some things that you can put into play, but when you're put into a room and you're facing your sixth grade beginning band for the first time as a first year teacher and i'm using that's the perfect example you 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 don't know all that you need to know because the first thing you don't know is you don't know how to keep them in their seats and not have them hit each other with things or throw things or just like ask questions out loud like with no record you don't know how to manage that so the first thing you have to do is figure that out. How do you figure that out? Do not be afraid to ask the more experienced, experienced people around you how they did that thing. It doesn't mean that you're you're unintelligent. It means that you're learning like how to do it better than you did it this particular day. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, it's this. It took me longer than I needed it to perhaps to figure out figure that out. So I know how to do this. I don't need to ask questions. Okay, what is going on in my room? What just happened? I need to ask some questions. I mean, it took me a little bit, a little bit longer than perhaps it should have. But you know, I I value so much those mentors as well, the people who helped me through my teaching internship and my first few years of teaching, who still continue to help me today with like things that I'm just thinking about that I need them to flip over in their heads too and go, okay, what do you think? Went a bit, went on tour again. That's what I do. Oh, you know? That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but my next question was, you were, you were mentioning a little bit about, you know, our current social and political climate and those things. So, and I'm sure everyone has been giving all of this, a lot of thought and how we can go back to work and our jobs and stuff and how we can maybe do things differently. Right. And so, mm-hmm. What are you hoping for our field? Uh, something that we think you know we could change for the better um, moving forward, given everything that's been going on. Well, I think I think that many people have already started on the idea of opening up the repertoire that we play and being more diverse and being more welcoming to music of different types and varieties and from different cultures. So I think that process had begun, and I think that it will continue once once we emerge from this this current situation. I really think that a lot of the music that is being written right now for the um, adaptable ensemble is going to have an impact in ways that we haven't even envisioned yet. Because um, composers are rewriting things that are in existence, but people are creating some new and really innovative things that I just I, I think will move us forward and enrich us in some ways that we will we may even realize in hindsight rather than in the moment. So and I also think that the way that technology is moving forward is gonna allow us to do some interesting and innovative things. And that when I say that, I don't mean in terms of producing video where, you know, people send in their individual tracks and then you create the video. I mean, like, like actual, we can all play live together with less and less latency based on an internet based or some sort of app application 
that's going to allow us to do that because it seems to me my, my email sees every couple of weeks something that's improved or a new program that's a little bit different than this program and it's better because of this. And I think perhaps the, the combination of those things will open some doors for all of us that we don't even see yet. To say that again, I mean, it just, it's, it's interesting to watch all of these different things play out and to see how people are getting involved in different ways and creating different avenues to get to, um, get to music in ways that are engaging still for students because students sign up for the band because they like to play in the band. And that's the one thing that this pandemic is really making us all struggle with. So, oh yeah. <laughs> for sure well because it's it's ever evolving you know it, it, the thing that was true about things in June is not true now you know our president said something along those lines the other day when he moved the semester to vir the virtual setting for undergraduates he's like the information we had in June is not what we have now and based on what we know now we have to do this this way mm, you know yeah. just it just it's evolving like i feel like some days it evolves within a 12-hour span that we learn something new mm -hmm. about either how the pandemic has moved or how our behavior needs to change in the face of that it's 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 a little it's a little crazy to me how it it just it, and i it's supposed to science is supposed to have that you know, capability. It's just pretty remarkable how all of that, how all of it's moving forward. Yeah, I think a lot is changing. Yeah, very, very rapidly, especially with everything going on with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I guess my last question for you is, and this is more of a, a deep thought sort of question, um, because you, you've mentioned a few times you were talking about, you know, being a young music educator and some of the things that either you wish you knew in the past or advice for, for younger people. So my last question for you is, can you think of any advice that you would give your younger self if you were just starting out all over again? What sort of advice would you give yourself? That's always a fun question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I saved it for last. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, there, there's two routes here, and I think I'm going to take them both. Okay. First of all, just go ahead and fail. Fail all over the place. Try not to hurt people when you're failing. Don't do that, especially the students, but just fail. Don't try to hide it. Just learn from it. Like learn all that you can from it because all of us are going to have failures. That's how you learn and grow. And it's very, very hard when you are young and you're brand new in a situation because you want to look like you're competent, but there's some things you inherently can't know. Like you cannot know all the functionality of your brand new school the first week that you work in it. You just can't. So ask questions, learn from the failures you have, and don't don't be afraid to to have those moments. Now, in addition to that, as you're traveling through your time, make sure you're finding your people. And when you find your people that can help support you through your career, keep those people. I am very, very, very fortunate, almost spoiled to a point, with the people that I consider my closest colleagues and allies in life and in the profession. And some of them are both things, some of them are one or the other. But it's just this incredible group of people that are so smart and so observant and so with it that they bring all of their experiences and all of their like life energy to the, ta to the table, which is just, it's incredibly motivating. You know, there, there are days, the uh, term that has gone around social media is the Corona Coaster like your up days and your down days based on the pandemic or in the pandemic. And literally some of those people have like made a bad day into a good day just with a phone conversation or a Zoom call or a FaceTime yeah. because they, they just are those people. And you have to, 
the problem is as you go through your life and your career, sometimes you'll meet someone who looks like one of those people, but they're not really. And you have to be okay with that ending and moving forward from that because you what you don't want is to be surrounded by people who aren't really your people um, because that can have adverse effects in other ways. So, but I just, I just, I think about this a lot, especially in our current situations. I just, I'm very fortunate to know the people that I know that like are, I don't like the term inner circle, but I guess that's what it's called in the world. Just that group of people. They're just so, they're just phenomenal human beings. So those are my two things. Don't be afraid to fail and find your people. That's what it all boils down to. <laughs> that's great. I want to thank you so much for coming on and with talking with me today and sharing your experiences. This was great, and it was great chatting with you. Well, I've had a great time. You know, we have our uh, our uh, mutual friend and colleague Joanna Hersey to thank for this. Right? Yeah, she's awesome. She's great. Oh, she's she is phenomenal. You know, if there's if there's someone, if you are a young like performance musician, like a young like, woman who's trying to break into the field as a performer and sustain a career, she's somebody to talk to. Oh yeah. She's a very I mean, smart woman. Very smart. Uh, yeah. She's tremendous. I mean, what she's done down at UNC Pembroke for and with students down there is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So. So thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Talking. Oh, because I love to hear myself talk so much. Oh, I, trust me. I, lo- I love it too. love editing my voice over and over and over again. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great to talk to you, Cassidy. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much.